You enjoy that singing today? Oh, it was marvelous. Y'all in good voice, and the choir was exceptional, and they really set the stage for what's happening now. You know, on long flights out of Singapore, my wife and I often get into conversations with fellow travelers. Now, the conversations usually start innocently enough. Uh, there's questions like, uh, where are you going? You know, stuff like that. And so people usually are quite uh, open to answering that question. And then comes the dreaded question, what do you do? What do you do? And that's a scary question because when the people find out that I'm a pastor of a church, oh boy, then you begin to see the light bulb go on in their head and they're saying to themselves, what's going to happen over the next 15 or 20 hours? I got nowhere to go. I can't get out of here. You know? And so people have that. Uh, feeling is stark terror, as it were. And then uh, some of them were very clever. So what they'll do is they'll say, oh, it's been a really long day. I think I'm going to rest a little bit. So I'm just going to go to sleep, you know. And so they'll put their head up against the, the seat and then they'll just kind of tone out, zone out, and they don't want me to bother them. Now, I'm happy to say that I've never had any person who asked to be relocated. I never had anybody ask to be relocated. Now, that doesn't mean it won't happen, but I'm saying right now I'm batting a 1,000. And so people still don't mind sitting next to me, even though they know I'm a pastor of a church. People have all kinds of ideas about the faith, those who serve God, and especially about churches. Uh, They wonder sometimes, and I've had people say this to me, you're a pastor. I say, yes. And they say, what happened? You couldn't get another job? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean... They're right, you know, they're, they'll say that. And I'll say, no, I had another job, but I changed to being a pastor. And then they say, oh, 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 okay, that's fine. And so uh, this is the kind of thoughts that are going through people's minds. Churches in particular are suspect because they have so many problems. They have so many problems. How can people who claim to love God and live for God have so many problems getting along with each other and be so hypocritical? Have you ever heard that happen to you? People say that to you? Yeah, I've had that. people say that to me a lot. Well, if you have ever felt this way about church, I'm here to tell you, you're right. You're right. Churches do have problems. It has been this way from the very beginning, from the very beginning. Churches are made up of imperfect people. That's why they're imperfect churches, all right? There's no, there's no way around that. And so we have to be on our toes. We have to be careful. This is why such books as in the Bible as 1 Corinthians are so important. They are God's way of fixing broken churches, broken churches. And so maybe perhaps you're sitting out there and you're saying, hmm, okay, I know a church that needs needs some fixing. Now, what am I going to do about it? Well, maybe you ought to listen to what 1 Corinthians says before you make a move. What kinds of problems do churches have? What does God want his people to do about these problems? And that's why I want you to join with me in the second sermon of the Corinthians series, and uh, let's read and heed God's call for, to fix a broken church. And we're going to do this by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And as we go through this, I think it's all important and quite appropriate that we ask God to open our hearts, because this is some important stuff. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and we know that GBC is not perfect, 
Well, the people of GBC are not perfect. But Father, that nevertheless does not dampen our desire to be more like your son. And so open our hearts and open our minds. Let us come before you with broken and contrite hearts so that you may be able to show us where we are and where we should be. That, that you may lift each one of us and GBC as a whole to new heights of spiritual growth and commitment. Do that, O oh Lord, today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Now, to help us better understand the church at Corinth, we have to go back and just review for just a second the context in which this all happened. You don't have the context, you don't really understand. Why is Paul talking about this? This is not a problem in churches today. But you have to understand the culture. For example, they were pagan in their worldview. They were materialistic and immoral to the core. Last week, we talked about debauchery being the hallmark of the, of the city of Corinth. And it's debauchery with the capital D. They did not hold anything back, and they went for it all the way. So Paul comes in. He preaches the gospel. Some of them get saved, and suddenly life is different for them. Well, almost, because what happens is old habits die hard. And so they're walking this narrow line, trying to be what they were and what they are now. And some of them made it, and a whole lot of them didn't. And that's why Paul had to write this book of 1 Corinthians. Spiritually, spiritually, they were sanctified, they were holy, they were set apart by God for God. That's what Paul said last week. He said, listen, y'all, you got to understand who you are in Christ. Get it out of your mind, this whole business that you're just living life the way you've always lived it. You are different because of what the gospel has accomplished in your life and what you are experiencing now. They were immature. They were idolatrous. They were carnal, meaning they were fleshly. And they were giving all, into all kinds of desires of the flesh. As we said last week, they were defiled, they were disgraced, and they were divided. Yeah, all three of those things were going on in their church. Sound familiar? <laughs> you bet it does. Because many churches today are caught in the same kind of trap. So many churches today are in need of God's healing hand. God's people uh, need to be in his word and trust and obey him out of reverence and love. And that's the difference. It's reverence and love. It's not purely by duty. It's not purely by duty. Sometimes people get this mixed up because they say, well, that's what I should do as a Christian. Well, there's some truth to that, but it's always when God calls us to do something, it's out of reverence for God, and it's out of love for God. That's how we should be looking at our responsibilities. And so the Corinthian church, in many ways, is like so many churches today, living more like the world and less like the people of God. And so if that's, if that's what you see now in your mind, you're there, you're there. And that lets us go on to the first thing. Now, I, sometimes when I'm reading a book in the Bible, I like to play games with myself, such as I'll say things like, I wonder what Paul's going to tackle first. So many problems. You know, shouldn't he, shouldn't he tackle this? Should he do this? You know, why is he talking about what he's talking about? See? Well, Paul is very wise. He's being led by the Spirit of God. And he goes right for the very first problem, and it's divisions in the church divisions in the church. 
And I think this is probably a very, very common problem in churches today. In fact, I would go so far as to call it the curse of divisions in the church. The curse of divisions in the church. There's the reality. Look at verse 10. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul looks out there and he says, <laughs> you guys got some real problems. And you know what the problem is? They're all divided. They're disunified, you know? And so he goes out there. He uses the word exhort, meaning it's an encouragement. It means it's like a polite command, okay? And he says, I command you that there be no divisions among you. This is where we get the English word schism. It means splits between people. And it's usually, usually associated with split by force, by force. Now, I didn't understand that at first, but then when I looked at the references, then they began to make it a little more clear. Perhaps it's force of personality. Perhaps it's force of alliances. Perhaps it's force of church politics. Whatever the case may be, there were some deep divisions among them. And he says, let's all agree. We have no more divisions. And he says, in fact, I want you to be made complete. Now, what does made complete mean? It means to put back in order or to restore something that has been broken. This word is used of uh, fishermen who mend their torn nets. It is speak, it's speaking of doctors who fix broken bones. It is used by people who have had joints that have been dislocated. And he says, my wish for you, Corinthians, is that you be made complete. You be put back whole you, the way that you ought to be. And then he had something specific in mind. And he said that you should be of the same mind. Now, some of the scholars, you know, look at this and they have different ideas. But it seems, it seems the great majority of them believe that this is an internal commitment to the truths, beliefs, and convictions of God. And then the second one, same judgment, is an external commitment to behavior that applies those same truths, beliefs, and convictions. So you have to have both of these at work. You can't just say, I believe this, but I'm going to live this way. You can't do it. You have to have a deep commitment to both. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to say. He says, I pray you guys will be all healed up. I pray you all be restored back to what you're, the condition you should be in. And he says, that means that you have an internal commitment and you have an external commitment to um, the things of God. So instead of living in unity, they were living in disunity. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that Paul got a report. He got a report. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, <clears throat> by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you, he says. And so he goes on to uh, define what that is. But he said that there are quarrels among you. Now think about this for a moment. Whenever there are divisions, there are surely to follow quarrels. There are surely to follow quarrels. I've never been in a group of people where two people disagree and it doesn't eventually turn into hard feelings, you know, something like that. Because why? Because people hold on to their views. They hold on to their opinion. They hold on to their position. And so they won't give it up. And so it ends up in a quarrel. Or 
they'd say something like, well, we disagree. We agree to disagree, which means nothing. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. But that's exactly what was happening here among them. Divisions between God's people can only bring clashes and conflict, heartache and heartbreak. One of the things that I've tried to do since I've come to GBC, I've really tried to show and live another way to resolve things. Really, I have. I've tried to show you to be patient. I've tried to show you that the love conquers all. I've tried to show you these things. Now, there are various, there are various degrees of success, I suppose, but God knows. But that's what I'm trying to say to you, is that we don't want to have these quarrels among ourselves. What was the nature? What was the reason for these quarrels? Look at verse 12. He says in verse 12, he says, now I mean this, this is what I mean, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and of Cephas, and I of Christ. Wow. <laughs> There's four different factions going on. I always love the last one because they're the holy group. They're the ones saying, forget you all. I'm for Christ. You know, that, that, that group seems to think that they're, they're right on top. But he talks about the first three. And he talks about them in this way. He says of Paul, did you know that Paul spent a year and a half with them as, as their pastor? He was their first pastor. He spent a year and a half with them. Then he called Apollos to come, and Apollos came, and he was their second pastor. Who was Apollos? If you go into the book of Acts, you'll find he was something else. This guy was something else. Apollos was the eloquent and mighty preacher. He was the epitome of, pre pre he was the prince of preachers, if you will. And he had that gift. He had that ability. So he was quite formidable. And then Cephas, that means reference to the apostle Peter, and then Christ. Well, why were these people so enamored with taking sides? Well, <laughs> had to do with the city. The city of Corinth was saturated with teachers and philosophers who were promoting their own brand of wisdom, okay? Their own brand of wisdom. So naturally, what happened was people said, oh, I really like this guy. I really like what he's saying. I know, I like how he says it, you know? It's just so great. And then they just fall over themselves to, to get near these people. And they wouldn't have any qualms whatsoever to say, I am Paul, I am Apollos, I am of Cephas. They would have no problem. That was a carryover from their culture. And so the Corinthian Christians had a hard time breaking this habit of following prominent philosophers and teachers. God's people are prone to taking sides and choosing favorites. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that? You, you, you can notice it this way. Let, let, me, let me help you. Okay, have you ever been in a care group meeting or a Bible study? And someone says, I was just reading the other way. The other day, this fellow said this, and he names this fellow, you know, and, he, and that's his authority, is this fellow, okay? It's not the word of God, it's the fellow, you know, that he's, he's quoting, you see? And you see that happen all the time. Human nature enjoys following prominent human personalities. I think it's gotten worse. You know, I, I've been at this a while, and so I've seen different cycles of things roll through. And what happens is today... The impact of media and social media has been astounding. Pastors, preachers, and professors of God's work uh, 
um, can uh, God's work and work can become media celebrities, garnering huge followings, huge followings. And so this is what's happening today. The results of quarrels in the church as people begin to value the teacher over the teaching as they elevate their favorites. That happens? Two years ago, yeah, I think it was two years ago, there was a prominent pastor in an Asian country who had dynamic work going for the Lord. And he had even satellite churches going for I happen to know this fellow because we worked together at First Baptist Church Dallas. And uh, we got the word that he had suddenly passed away. He's a young guy. You know? He says, wow, what happened? He had a gigantic stroke, and he died. And so as the days wore on, stories began to circulate. And what happened was his elders, his elders, those in leadership, had adopted the theology and the philosophy of a very prominent U.S. pastor. And they kept holding that pastor up to that standard. And whenever he did not conform or he did not, he, you know, he, he drifted away from that U.S. pastor's uh, philosophy and theology, they were for sure on him. They would nail him to the wall. And they said after a while, they said the stress came to be too much. Well, they had the funeral for him. And what happened was the entire elder board stepped down. Entire elder board. Why? Because they realized they had gone too far. They had chosen their favorites, and they had imposed that upon their pastor, and he, there's no way he could live up to it. And as a result, God took him down. So these things happen, folks, and so we ought not, we ought not to take choosing favorites lightly, okay? In some churches, God's servants are competing with one another instead of co-working with one another to evangelize and edify. There could be competition between elders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, ministry leaders, and even among members of care groups. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought? But it happens. Because why? We are competitive people. And we love to win. Say it with me. We love to win. See? Love to win. See, that, that's what happens, is that we love to win. As a result, we have quarrels, disagreements, and we have division. And that can happen. The reality is that some churches are broken because of divisions among God's people, caused by people choosing favorites. Well, that sets the stage then for verses 13 through 17. What does he say there? The cure for divisions in the church. Now, this is going to be quite interesting because I, you know, like I said, I like to play games with my kids. So I looked at this and I said, I wonder what Paul's going to do. How's he going to solve this one? This is really going to be something. So the cure for divisions in the church. He does it very cautiously by first asking three questions. Three questions. They're rhetorical questions. What are rhetorical questions? Rhetorical questions are questions that you ask, but you already know the answer, okay? You already know what the expected answer is. So in this case, the answer to all of these questions that Paul asks is no, is no, okay? So the first question is, has Christ been divided? In verse 13, he says this, has Christ been divided? 
Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Interesting. Interesting. So what he was basically saying when he says, has Christ been divided? He said, look, there's Paul, Apollos, and Peter. But guess what? We all taught the same Christ. You don't have three different Christs uh, because of the teaching of these people. We're all together in this. So why are you making such a big deal about this? Yeah, one guy may have a winsome personality. Yeah, one guy may have the eloquence of speech. Yeah, one guy may have an approach that's very favorable and very uh, alluring and very attractive. But we're still talking about the same person, about Christ. And so Paul was saying, stop and think for a minute. There aren't three Christs. There's only one Christ, and we're all teaching the same one. And then Paul says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Uh, in verse 13, Paul was careful to teach and preach just the opposite, in fact. If you look at chapter 1, verse 23, this is what Paul had to say about his preaching, the message that he had. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. He said, make no mistake, I did not come here and I do not preach myself, I preach Christ. That's what he was trying to say to them. The last question is different. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, why would Paul bring up baptism of all things at this point in the passage? Okay? Well, what is baptism? Baptism was a public identification with Christ. It showed publicly that one is a follower and loyal to Christ. People were not identifying with Paul nor declaring their loyalty to him because they weren't baptized in his name. He wasn't trying to get a following. In the few baptisms that Paul did do, Crispus, Gaius, and this house of Stephanas, he was careful not to baptize them in his name. So Paul, from the very start, was not trying to get people to be loyal to him. He was not trying to get people loyal to him, but rather... He wanted them to be loyal to Christ. That was his first foremost cure for divisions in the church. So when you and I are asking ourselves the question, are we helping or are we hurting the church? Ask yourself the question, are we calling more attention to Christ or are we calling more attention to ourselves? Simple. Are we trying to get a following of people to agree with us and follow us? Or are we trying to point people to Christ? See, that's what Paul was trying to say. That was his first cure. The second cure is found in verse 17. Verse 17. And he says this in verse 17. Well, we'll go back. Or were you baptized in me, Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize into the, also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize any other. But verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What is he saying here? He says, stay focused, folks. Stay focused on what God has called you to do. Don't get all distracted by all of these things, that all the fame and fortune that comes with, with being a, 
a, a servant of God. He says, don't get yourself caught up in all that. He says, but to preach the gospel. And he, notice here, he says, not in cleverness of speech. Now, I went to different uh, translations just to get a better flavor of this. And these are all legitimate translations, okay? And so the NIV says, not with words of human wisdom, okay? Not with words of human wisdom. Next week, Pastor Oliver will be coming and he'll be talking about wisdom. And then the New Living Translation, clever speeches and high-sounding ideas. The beauty of the gospel is not in the preaching of high-sounding ideas, but keeping it simple enough that even a child could understand it. I'm truly amazed sometimes that when we get into this about sharing the gospel, we, we have some very good ways of doing it. But we tend to maybe put those aside and we, and, and we get into great theological discussions and ramifications. But for me, I would say the simpler the better. The simpler the better. We're all sinners. Jesus Christ died and rose again, paid for us. He took our place so we didn't have to go on the cross. Full stop. And you can appropriate that work. That can become, that can become your promise if you're willing to exercise faith. And that's what it is here. He says, not in cleverness of speech. And he says, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, the NIV says, emptied of its power. The New Living Translation says, lose its power. The gospel had a power all its own. The gospel has a power all of its own. Sometimes we, we, we hesitate to share the gospel, right? Because what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? Be ready. They will ask a question you don't know the answer to. <laughs> okay? That's the way it is. All right? For sure they probably will. But what happens is the power of the gospel has its own power. It has its own power. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wow. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. You want to see the power of God at work? Share Christ with people. Share Christ with people. Not everybody's going to come to Christ. Okay, I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time. Not everybody's going to have questions that you can answer. I prepare you ahead of time. But the gospel has its own power to strike into the hearts of people and to touch them. And so this is what Paul was relying on here when he said these things that he said. So Paul was true to his calling and assignment from God. He didn't get it all caught. He didn't get all caught up in the attention and that comes with building a reputation and a following. That was the farthest thing from his mind. That was the farthest thing from his mind. All he wanted to do was see people come to Christ. Well, this brings us to the challenge. The challenge is for all of us. It's not just for a select group of people. And so the first one is avoid the temptation to pick favorites. Avoid the temptation to pick favorites. How are you going to do that? Value the teaching over the teacher. And if you're going to look for teachers, you're going to look for themes, you're going to look for things that these guys are teaching, be sure that you pick those who seek unity with humility. Unity with humility. The moment I hear somebody share, I've got a new teaching. I've got some, God just showed me that. And the minute that it hints of being disunified, 
and there's no humility on the part of that person, I go the other direction. I go the other direction. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. This is what Paul said. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching that you have learned, and turn away from them. So God, God, through the Apostle Paul, is putting out there some pretty strong markers for us. He's telling, look, look, you know, don't get caught up with these people who, speak, who talk about disunity and talk about unhappiness and all this kind of stuff. It's not that the church is perfect. We all know. But we can work together for making it better. But we do it with humility. And then be thankful for all the teachers, preachers that God supplies to the body of Christ. That's one thing that I found this week as I was going through my week. Realize that there is plenty of room for me to be thankful even for adverse circumstances. When you're thankful, boy, you can handle a lot. When you're thankful, you can do a lot. You see? But if you don't have thankfulness in your heart, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. And so be thankful for all the teachers, preachers that God has supplied to the body of Christ. And then my last piece of advice is take the best and leave the rest. (laughs) Take the best but leave the rest, okay? I have to admit to you, I don't understand everything that great teachers and preachers preach. Somehow we're not on the same wavelength or something like that. But I usually get something out of it, right? So I'll take it. I'll take it and I'll run. The rest of it, I'll figure it out later. All right? So these are three things that you can do. Number two, allow the spiritual leaders of the church the final say on the major doctrines of the church. Okay? How the church will carry out the task of making disciples in a spirit of unity. Look, at the, at the end of the day, like you all like to say, at the end of the day, someone has to make the call. All right? And God has appointed the spiritual leadership of the church to make those calls. Are we going to hold to the virgin birth? Are we going to hold salvation by Christ alone? Are we going to do all of these things? Yes, yes. So there's no use coming in and trying to change all that, right? You don't want to change all that. And so you have to come in. Now, what can you do? Well, if you have a problem, if you have a disagreement, Come in and share with the leaders what your view is. Help us understand what it is that you see. Number two, allow time for prayerful consideration. Allow for prayerful consideration. You know, some people come in and they'll say, hey, I told you last week about this, and you guys haven't corrected a thing, you know? And I'll say, well, we're still working on it. You know, we're still working on it. So allow time. And then thirdly, facilitate smooth transition. If a change needs to be made, be a facilitator of that change, okay? And so when you do this, then things can go much better. If you look at 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, Paul really puts the onus on the spiritual leaders of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 12 through 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who have diligently labor among you 
and have charge over you, says the Lord, and give you instruction, and that your esteem that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Okay? Oftentimes, every once in a while, I get asked to speak at a church or camp or something. And what happens is, inevitably, someone will take me aside and will say something like this. We got a problem in the church. <laughs> I almost feel like saying, really? Honestly? Wow, that's a surprise to me. Honestly, that's true. And so I'll say, sure. Um, if you feel comfortable sharing, share, share it with me. I don't have to have names and times and places, but just give me a general idea of what's going on. And they'll go on with this. And so I'll say, what, the first thing I say is, what are the leaders doing? What are the leaders doing? And usually, sometimes the answer comes back, they can't do anything. They don't know what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. And I says, why don't you work with them? Work with them. Help them. Help them. See? And that's the way the body of Christ ought to respond to disagreement among themselves is work together. So, Paul's solution, Paul's challenge to all of us, avoid temptation to pick favorites and allow the spiritual leaders of the church the final say on all major doctrines of the church and application of them to life. Divisions along the lines of personality, styles, and approach can divide a church. Instead of elevating God's servants beyond what God ever intended, appreciate their message and grow in it. But most of all, fix a broken church by uniting together around the clear teaching and applications of God's word and not around people and personality. When you keep that in mind, you're well on your way to having a unified church. Okay? So, I think God has said enough to us today. And so, we're going to close this off. And so, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, as human beings, we're beset by all kinds of sins. Father, you know them better than we do because you know us. Father, I pray today that you would take your word, Father, you would apply it to us. Not to the person sitting next to us, not to the person behind us or in front of us, but as appropriate to ourselves. May GBC become known as a church that is unified. May it become known as a church that is loyal to Christ and not to people. Thank you, Father. For your word, this name.